Well, good morning. My parents both worked when I was a little girl, and so my sister Jody and I were latchkey kids for a little while. And uh, this is my sister Jody and me in the Santa hat, so you're welcome. <laughs> Um, we were not quite responsible enough to carry around a key of our own, and so there was a garage key instead. And what was supposed to happen is that every day we were supposed to go and get the key from the garage and unlock the door and then immediately take the key back to the garage, right? lest we forget it inside and lock ourselves out the next day. And it was a pretty good system because there are only two kids, so it's not hard to know whose turn it is to take the key back to the garage. If she did it yesterday, it's me today. And if I did it today, it's her tomorrow. That's super simple. And we look like good kids. We should have been able to do that. <clears throat> Still, here's what happened every single day <laughs> that I can remember in my whole childhood. We would get off the bus. We would chat very pleasantly with one another all the way to the garage. Get the key, go to the door, unlock the door, go inside, drop our bags, and then immediately begin screaming at each other about whose turn it was to take the key back out. Like, we would slam doors and throw things. It came to blows every single day. <laughs> every day. And we, like, otherwise, were very loving children. Every day we would beat each other up as hard as we could for 15 minutes until out of the corner of our eye we saw my mom's car coming down the block. And then we would jump up and straighten out our clothes and run the key back to the garage and get back inside before she knew what we had been doing. How hard can it possibly be to take a key back out to the garage? So this week I have been listening to the news about this conflict, this terrible conflict in Syria. And um, I keep thinking, how hard can this be? Why can't we figure this thing out? Why can't we just stop bombing this city long enough to let the civilians get on buses and move out? How hard can that be? Peace seems so simple and so logical until it's up to us to start it. How hard can it possibly be to take a key back outside to the garage? Hard. It's hard. Peace is really hard. Very hard to make and very hard to keep. The nativity that we have up in the hallway, which I helped set up, so if you like it, you're welcome, and if not, don't worry. Um, <laughs> the nativity always seems so peaceful, doesn't it? The mother is so serene, and the baby is never crying, and everything is all alight with this heavenly glow. And it's so nice, but Jesus was not really born into that kind of time. Matthew tells a story that happened probably about two years after Jesus was born of some wise men who were visiting him. They were astrologers, actually, who came from the east because they had been watching the stars and they had seen in the stars that a new king had been born, the king of the Jews. And so they came to Jerusalem to find out where is he? We want to celebrate him and worship him. 
And Herod the Great was king of the Jews at that time. By all accounts, a pretty successful king. He built a harbor and a port city in Caesarea, and he built the second temple, and he made the system of aqueducts in Jerusalem, and, I mean, really established Israel as a trading hub. But he was also quite a ruthless man, very prone to jealousy. In fact, he famously uh, murdered his wife and two of his sons because he was afraid that they were going to take the throne from him. So you can imagine how a man like that would react to these visiting astrologers who are announcing the birth of a new king. He's jealous and then terrified and then furious. Matthew tells us that Herod calls together all the chief priests and the elders of Israel to find out, like, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they agree it's in Bethlehem. So he sends the astrologers off to Bethlehem to find the baby. And he says, go and find him and come back and tell me exactly where he is, because I want to go and worship him too. But it turns out that actually what he wants to do is eliminate any threat to the throne. And so thankfully, the astrologers are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They go home a different way. And so Herod never knows precisely where the baby is, but he does know how old the baby's supposed to be because the star has been in the sky for two years. And so he sends orders out to have all the babies in Bethlehem, two years old and under, killed. Now, I always thought that this was a massive number of infants, but, it, but historians have done some calculating based on population models and growth at the time, and it turns out it's, it's about 20 or so uh, babies and toddlers who would have been killed in Bethlehem. But still, imagine being a king, a grown man, the most powerful person in the city, so threatened, by the birth of a baby who someday, far in the future, long after you're dead and gone, might become your successor, that you would be willing to murder dozens of infants. I don't know exactly how to label the feeling that must have been growing in Herod, (laughs) but I'm more familiar with it than I might like to admit. You know, when a colleague uh, gets promoted at work in an area I feel qualified for, or this is embarrassing but true, uh, if somebody loses a lot of weight, right, and I'm sort of happy for them and I'm sort of angry at them. Uh, (laughs) Or, um, you know, somebody is making more money or has a bigger house or gets married or has a baby, anything that makes it seem like they're getting ahead of where I think I should be. And this thing starts to grow in me, some kind of combination of jealousy and then uh, fear, because what if it runs out? What if there's not enough for me? And then anger. And that's not a good combination. Jealous, fearful rage is never never good. That doesn't do any good to anyone. I looked, and there's not an emoji for that. <clears throat> but there should be, jealous, fearful rage. The suggestion that we might not be the best, the most important, the most powerful, the most favorite, 
is so terrifying and then so enraging that left unchecked, that leads us to devastating things, even as far as ordering the murder of infants. It's terrible. Peace is hard. Especially during the Christmas season, we call Jesus the Prince of Peace. What does that mean? I think it means that there is none of that jealous, fearful rage in Jesus. There just isn't any. I mean, he gets angry, but he doesn't get that kind of jealous, swirling angry that just you gets run right over. When people are trying to trick him in an argument, he never gets taken in. When he's in a boat and the storm is raging and it looks like the boat's going to capsize, he just takes a nap. How do you do that? How does he do that? There are stories about Jesus gathering to himself all of the outcasts, all of the hated members of society to have dinner. When I try to picture that, I don't know if you ever do this, like like close your eyes and imagine the story that's in, in the Bible. When I try to imagine that story, I just picture Jesus in this like this stone courtyard and all these people are coming in in groups of twos and threes and this is what he looks like. So happy. So happy. Like throwing his arm around people's shoulders and grabbing these big burly men by the face. Just like so happy to see them. I think that's what peace feels like. That, that welcome. Somebody who's so glad to see you. You're coming into the fold where you belong. Where everyone is loved and cared for. You are loved like you are. There's no division, no fighting, none of that like underlying hostility that nobody mentions but everybody can tell is going on. There's no potential threat, no jealousy, no fear, no anger. Just peace. This deep, deep peace that God promises and then Jesus in his life and his death leads us towards. That kind of peace is possible, but it's expensive. And the apostles are a great example of a group who are struggling to work that out. This team of 12 men, they would never have been on a team together in any other circumstance. I mean, there are fishermen on that team with the tax collectors who work on the same beach where they fish. So that means that those are the tax collectors who have been systematically ripping them off every year since they went into business. And that's your teammate. That cannot have gone well. In fact, they spend a ton of time arguing between them about who is the greatest. And Jesus keeps telling them, serve each other. Consider one another better than yourselves. Lay down your lives for each other. That must have been hard to hear. How do you even start to do that? Lay down your life for someone else. I watched Hacksaw Ridge last week. Or two weeks ago. I can't remember when it was here. The film tells the story of Desmond Doss, who is a young man, uh, a combat medic during World War I. And um, he enrolls in the, or enlists in the Army even though he refuses to bear arms 
because of his pacifist beliefs as a Christian. And so I don't want to spoil the film for you, but there's a scene quite early on where all of his all of his buddies, the other men in his unit, find out that he is not willing to carry arms. In fact, he won't engage in combat at all. And you can imagine how well that went over. They start to tease him and mock him, and then they just start to beat on him. They're trying to goad him, like see if they can get him to hit back and fight, because he won't. He won't do it. They beat him to a pulp, and he will not fight back. He just takes it. And all the way through the film, he absorbs this violent, the violence of this war, like in his body. And then he quietly works towards peace. Near the end of Jesus' life, one of the 12 men who were closest to him sells him for 30 pieces of silver, and then he betrays him with a kiss. It's such a radical betrayal, and Jesus just takes it. He won't even let other people fight back on his behalf. And he just stands silent through this mountain of accusations at his trial and lets himself be sentenced to death. Peace is expensive. There are incredible stories of people who are radically committed to peace in the midst of unspeakable violence. In Auschwitz during World War II, uh, there were 10 men who were called out of the ranks of prisoners and sentenced to die by starvation because one prisoner had escaped and the guards wanted to make sure that nobody tried that again. So these men were to be locked in a cell, buried Um, up to their chest in earth and then left there to starve. And hearing that, one of the men who was called out, I mean, he just fell on the ground begging for mercy, crying that he had a family and children and, and would they spare him? And Maximilian Kolbe was a Franciscan priest and a fellow prisoner and he stepped forward and offered to take his place. He told the guards because he was older, it would be better if he died. They could get more work out of a younger man. And they agreed. So Colby was locked in the cell and buried with the other men and left there. And he stayed lucid while everyone else began to hallucinate because their brains were dehydrating. He survived through 14 days of that and had to be killed by lethal injection. The whole time, he sang songs, quoted scripture, and comforted his fellow prisoners. Peace is expensive. In Rwanda, uh, during the 1994 genocide, there was a group of university students who were in a Bible study together. And they... We're studying Paul's letters, and they began to take seriously his words that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. And they believed that that gospel, that word, presented a realistic 
alternative to the racial tension that was brewing in their country. So they began to preach it publicly. And so when the violence finally erupted, the Hutu soldiers rounded up all of the members of the Christian group and lined them up together in a line and demanded that they identify themselves by race. Were they Hutu or Tutsi? And one at a time down the road, they refused. We are not Hutu or Tutsi, they said. We are Christians. And so they shot them all. There is a group of men in Syria who are known as the White Helmets. You can watch a documentary about them on Netflix. They're from all different walks of life. Some of them were academics. Some were mechanics, plumbers, lawyers. They gave up their work and joined the White Helmets as the violence escalated in their cities. And whenever there is a bombing, the White Helmets are the first responders. So they dig into the rubble and they pull out survivors. Many of them have lost their lives and they have witnessed unspeakable suffering and pain. And every day they run towards the bombs and start over. There's a community house in the downtown east side of Vancouver called St. Kiera. It's right across from Oppenheimer Park, which is a center for drug trafficking, and often it's violent there. And St. Kiera is a community made up of about four families, a number of singles, and lots of kids. And they moved there as peacemakers and community builders. So when I met them, I asked them, what does that mean? How, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And the guy I was talking to said, well... The truth is that usually what it means is that at night when we start to hear things like scuffling around in the park and you can tell that's going to get heated and ugly, we just go over to the park and like stand there. (laughs) Like we just put our bodies in between people and sometimes that works. Peace is possible, but it is expensive. And so as I've been considering these stories, there are a couple of things that I think will help us as we practice peace this week. First of all, we are going to have to take God's word seriously. As we study God's word, some things we find in there sound simple, but they're incredibly hard to live out, like forgive each other. Doesn't that sound easy? Or even do not be afraid. That's not like a warm sentiment or suggestion. That's a command for us. Do not be afraid. And it lays the groundwork for peace. Think of the kind of difference it would make in our whole valley if just this number of people decided to take that seriously, decided to grab hold of that. We will not be afraid. All of a sudden, it would be possible for us to walk right into neighborhoods we've avoided before and not be worried about our safety. It would be possible right away for us to throw open our doors to anyone and everyone to come in 
because we wouldn't be worried about things getting broken or stolen. We wouldn't be worried, frankly, about how clean our house was or whether people liked our decor. We would be able to tell our real stories, share our real selves, and not worry what people think. The possibility of real belonging and real peace begins to emerge. And that's just one thing, one word. Do not be afraid. Now, I get that the catch is that obeying God's word does not automatically make everything safe. Right? So even if we take seriously that command, do not be afraid, it doesn't eliminate the danger. And so the second thing I want us to consider as we practice peace is that peace is expensive. And we are going to have to be willing to pay for it. Desmond Doss in Hacksaw Ridge, took seriously God's command, thou shalt not kill. And it changed the course of his whole life. The students in Rwanda grabbed hold of this promise that in Christ there are no divisions between us, no Hutu and no Tutsi. They hung their lives on that, held on to it. And you know, they got it. They lived peace with one another, a kind of peace and belonging that no one else in that country was experiencing between Hutu and Tutsi. They got it. And they paid for it with their lives. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For he, Jesus, is our peace. In his flesh... He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. Paul is telling us that Jesus paid for peace with his actual physical body. He laid down his life and made it possible. And that's our model. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake or for the sake of the gospel will save it. Those are words for us. If we want to make peace, If we want to follow the prince of peace, we have to deny ourselves and lose our lives. Now, I want to be clear that I am not talking about about submitting to abuse or being a doormat in an abusive relationship. It's not what I mean. I want us to be willing to pay for peace, to be able to choose it ourselves out of obedience to God. In a real simple way, it might mean sacrificing our ideal holiday to have someone who's alone or someone who we know is going to be challenging at the table with us. It often means risking embarrassment or rejection when we stand up for something or we stand with someone. My friend has a little boy named Caleb. This is Caleb. And uh, when she went to pick him up after kindergarten one day, she was waiting for him and she watched a group of kids start to pick on a little girl. 
And Caleb, who is a very tiny child, came running across the playground, just running. And he jumped in front of this girl and spread his arms out. And he said, you don't say things like that. This is my friend. You can't do that. Way to go, little boy. It really might mean that we sacrifice, we risk our personal safety to make sure that someone else doesn't get hurt. When I lived in Kingston, I heard a couple starting to fight outside in the street, which wasn't, that wasn't actually super common in that neighborhood. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm still kind of a chicken, so I'm peeking out the door. And, um, and I can see this woman is sort of attacking this man, and he keeps trying to push her away. And, and so... My housemate Tom and I put our shoes on and walked outside and we just, we just followed this couple like up and down the street. <laughs> As we're walking down the driveway. He says, what are we going to do? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. We're just going to stay there until the cops come and we're just going to be there and maybe no one will get hurt. Those things sound so nice in theory. They're so hard to do. And I know that that's a good story about me, right? Don't I sound great in that story? But there are dozens of other stories where I couldn't do that. In my first year of university, I sat um, in front of my locked, deadbolted door in my dorm room all night long crying because I could hear my next-door neighbor getting beat up by her boyfriend and I was too afraid to do anything. I couldn't even call anyone. I just cried. Sometimes fear sweeps in and we start to question everything. We get totally paralyzed. Jesus was able to do those things. He was able to do what he did because he knew that he was safe with the Father. He knew that nothing could separate him from the love of God. Not embarrassment, not fear, not even death. I think that is the same thing that Desmond Doss knew when he walked into battle. It's the same thing that those students knew in Rwanda when they stood up and said, I will not. They know that they're safe with the Father. Every person throughout history who has been able to follow Jesus and laying down their life has done that. They've known the same thing. They know what Paul says in Romans. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So we loop back around. We have to be willing to pay for peace. And the way that we, like, get ourselves willing is we take God's word seriously. We believe that we are safe with God and loved by him. That our lives are held by him no matter what happens. And we can start to step forward into risky situations. We create space with our actual physical bodies for peace to begin to grow. You know, after the wise men visited Jesus, Joseph was warned in a dream that Herod wanted to kill the baby. 
So he took his family in the middle of the night and they fled to Egypt. I don't see a lot of holiday cards with Mary back on the donkey under the cover of darkness holding a struggling two-year-old in one arm and covering his mouth with the other to keep him from screaming. But that's what that story is. But Joseph believed God when he spoke. He took God's word seriously. And he paid for peace by leaving everything to save a life. As you enter into this final week of Advent, seven days till Christmas is crazy. There's so much busyness, so much stress, so much baking to do. Would you consider practicing peace with me? Would you think back and ask, is there a word from God that I need to take seriously? How do I live like that word is true? And then when the opportunity arises, would you consider practicing peace, even if it's expensive for you? 